0: think of the ludicrous picture of a lump of clay suddenly jumping off the potter's spinning wheel and declaring, You're unjust. Why are you making me like this? Why am I playing this role in life? As we turn with our study leader, Dave Watson to Romans chapter 9, verses 19 through 33, the Apostle Paul continues to wrestle with the problem of the Jewish rejection of the and he challenges us to humbly accept that God is our creator and to submit to his hands as he seeks to mercifully give us the gift of salvation based on the work of his son. Sam Rogers was sure with me how he went to Gatlinburg. Anybody ever been over to Gatlinburg. And you've seen the potter molding the clay today, and Sam was just sharing as we talked about the potter that uh, the last time he went to Gatlinburg, he was watching this very skilled artisan. And as he was watching this skilled artisan, a crowd was gathering around, and suddenly this lady came up, and she had a picture in her hand. And she said to the sculptor, here's a picture of the vase that I brought from you, and I love this vase, and I want you to make another one. And the potter threw another lump of clay on there and says, I'm really sorry. And she says, what do you mean you're sorry? You're the one that created this. And, and, you know, here's the picture. Make me another vessel. And he smiled and looked at her and says, I don't make any vessels the same. Every vessel is totally unique. And Sam in very skillfully showed, isn't that what the potter does with us? Every one of you in this room have been shaped Uniquely. There's nobody that has the same abilities that you have. And then Sam smiled and said, and that means there will never be another Sam. And all of us said, praise God. No. But I want you to know that there's not going to ever be another you. That's the wondrous thing. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans picks up on the book of Isaiah. He picks up on the book of Jeremiah. It picks up from Genesis chapter two, where it, the camera goes up, up close and personal, as it presents the Lord God reaching down, just like we saw the potter today reaching into the potter today, reaching in to a lump of clay, beginning to shape it and mold it. And then the book of Genesis chapter 2 tells us this incredible reality that you're going to be made in the image and the likeness of God, and that God breathes into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living soul. And that's how you're alive today. And so as we turn to Romans chapter 9, the issue is if you were shaped and molded by God, If he's the one that breathed life into you, he's the one that made you a human being, he's the one that gave you intellect, emotion, and will, he gave you a moral sense, he gave you an ability to know God, then doesn't it make sense to submit to him? So let's turn to Romans chapter 9 and see how the Apostle Paul develops that. He's answering the question, why is it that in the first century, and we could continue right up until the present, why is it... That hardly any of the Jewish people have responded. Why have so many of the physical sons of Abraham, the Israelites, the Jewish people, why have so few of them responded to Jesus as the Messiah? And Paul answered the question first of all by saying that God's word hasn't failed, that it never has been just the physical sons of Abraham. It was the ones that responded to the promise And so that's one of the very first answers, that God's word hasn't failed, but there has been a remnant, a small group of people that have responded to the promise of God from the very beginning. Then he goes on and develops the idea that there's always been this remnant that I was just sharing with you about down through time. There's always been in the mass of humanity, there's always been a small group that God has called out and they've responded to God's mercy. Now here's the important thing for you this morning. Do you accept the fact that you're a, a piece of pottery and that the, the Creator God is shaping and molding your life? And will you just rest in the fact that He has the right to guide your life and control your life? And the Apostle Paul sets up a, 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 a big contrast. He has vessels of mercy And vessels of wrath, which is a great big contrast. So, we need to try to wrestle with that this morning. What does it mean to be a vessel of mercy? What does it mean to be a vessel of wrath? And then he's going to close this passage by talking about a group of people that should have been the chosen. They should have been vessels of mercy, but instead they've now become vessels of wrath, and it's because they're stumbling over a stumbling stone. It's like the pottery comes alive. They start walking down through the pathway of life. And they have a great big stone in their path. It should have been a stone of protection. It should have been a stone of security. But instead, it becomes a stone that they stumble over. Let's look at it. Turn to Romans chapter 9. Let's begin, first of all, by looking at God's right as the potter over our life. Verses 19 and following, it says this. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who can resist his will? In the previous verses, it used the example of Pharaoh. And the example of Moses and the chosen people. And it also used the example of Esau and Jacob. And, and Paul made the very powerful point that our the ex- experience of the mercies of God is not dependent upon God seeing an incredible desire in us. God seeing an incredible gift in us. God seeing incredible work in us. And we talked the last time we were together about the fact that every one of us are wired to think if you try hard, if you work hard to be good, that God will accept you. And throughout the book of Romans, we've learned that if you really are good and you really do keep the law of Moses, then that's right, you'll get in. So that intuitive sense is right, that if we really strive hard to do good, That we're going to get in. But the book of Romans has exposed the reality of every one of your lives. And I want every one of you to understand this. There is none of us that are good. As we sit here today, outside responding to the promise of Jesus, without having Jesus creating new life in us, we are all wicked. We are all sinners. There's none righteous, no, not one. And the Apostle Paul has been developing that idea that no one can say, God, you have to accept me because I've earned it. There's no person that can stand in the presence of God and say, God, you have to let me into your family because look at all that I've done. The only way that we can stand before God is to say, God, I'm a sinner and I receive your Redeemer. And that's exactly what the Israelites have to do in the book of Exodus. They have to believe God's promise. He's sent a deliverer to them. The truth of the matter is, as we study the early chapters of Exodus, and then as we read their story through the wilderness, they're idolaters, they're rebellious against Moses, and God, in His mercy, fulfills His promise to them, and He lets them go. Pharaoh becomes the dark Vader. In the story of Israel, and he opposes God and he's rejecting God. And what the story of Exodus says is this great big ruler who thinks that he has nothing to do with the God of Israel, and why should he even listen to the stupid nomadic shepherd named Moses? And the book of Exodus tells you a very powerful thing. It says that the living God of the universe really is the creator. And he is ultimately controlling. He's the author that's running the story. That's what Paul's been teaching us. And that Pharaoh is the foil. He's the dark Vader who's going to be destroyed because of God's incredible power. And the children of Israel are going to become vessels of mercy. That's the Old Testament story as they're delivered out of the land of slavery into the promised land. The Apostle Paul picks up with that. You ask the question, well, if God's the potter... And nobody can really resist his will, then how can he blame us? Look how Paul answers it. But who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? Who are you to talk back to God? So, what did form say to the one who formed it? What did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common purposes? The very first issue I want you to think about this morning is. Does God have the right, as the one that created you, to shape and mold your life the way that He desires? Now, just imagine that this piece of pottery that was just made, as the potter is seeking to use the tools upon that lump of clay, seeking to shape it, suddenly using animation, they come alive, jump off the table, and says, "You stupid potter! I don't believe in you anymore. I don't think you exist." That's what Richard Dawkins said. He's one of the most brilliant scientists in the world, and he's written major books on atheism. How many of you believe in God this morning? How many of you believe that there's a personal creator? He's the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You believe that he became incarnated in the second person of the Trinity named Jesus. How many of you believe all that this morning? Richard Dawkins, if he was speaking to you today, would say that you're all foolish, you're all ignorant. What I want you to really get a hold of is that as you look at nature, every one of your genetic codes in your body is a language. Much more complex than all the volumes that created the Encyclopedia Britannica. And Richard Dawkins believes that the human genome and the code that produced that, which is like a gigantic language message code, like an incredible encyclopedia... And your whole body, the cells, every one of your body, how many of you have ever driven by the GM plant on 360 going towards the airport? If you go through that plant, there's all kinds of incredible machines. Richard Dawkins believes that the GM plant took place by an explosion of metal and plastic and building materials. It all happened by chance. Because every cell, not just one of your cells, but every single cell in your body makes the GM plant look like a hunk of junk and no plant at all, only it really is planned there. But the cells of your body are a much more well-planned, engineered, carefully designed manufacturing plant than the GM plant ever dreamed about it. Richard Dawkins believed that that all took place by accident. He also believes that you take a lump of clay, just a bunch of material stuff, have it develop over millions upon millions of years, and suddenly he becomes a man that can say to a woman one day, I love you, and the reason I love you is that synapses are taking place in my head, it's all just molecules colliding, it's really just neurons flying, it doesn't really mean anything, and I want to be your husband. How many of you think Richard Dawkins' wife would say, boy, I want to marry you? You see, what really counts to you is that you have had the divine creator breathe in your nostrils the breath of life. You're not an idiot for believing. In fact, you know what the Bible says? The Bible says if you just walk outside today and just yesterday, for example, out on a big ranch down south of town here, we're out there in the fields and watching dove fly and not shooting them this time, We're just enjoying them. We're looking at beautiful water and everything. What the book of Romans is saying is that every second of that time looking at his creation, God is shouting at me. They're the designer. You should be thankful to him. You should be enjoying him. There's someone incredibly powerful as you feel that wind begin to flow out of Oklahoma, bringing that cool, refreshing air. That should tell you that there's an incredible lover that created the universe that's bringing you refreshment and he's bringing you relief from the heat. All of nature is calling out to you today to praise the Lord. You're not the idiot. I want to strengthen you this morning. You that are sitting here this morning that are saying, I am a lump of clay. But God had breathed into my nostrils and I become a living lump of clay. I now reflect his eternal personality and his hands are upon my life and I want to respond to him and I want to love him. And so one of the things I would pray that you would do as a result of hearing the idea that he is the potter and you're the clay, that during this week that you'll reverse Romans 1.18 and following because it says that when they knew God, they didn't honor him as God. They didn't give him thanks. Instead, they started just worshiping birds and animals and just material things. So this week, we don't worship our cars. We don't just live to watch the next TV program. We don't even just live to go to a big high-rise building in Dallas and be able to try to make some material stuff. We enjoy all of the things the Lord has given us as gifts, but we don't live for it. We don't let it become the object of our ultimate desires. Instead, we live moment by moment in intimacy with God, thanking Him and adoring Him. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's saying that God really is the potter. And after all, we are his clay. And one of the things that Jesus moves in your life to do, Jesus comes into my life and he comes into your life, and instead of being an arrogant fool that thinks that you're just a material lump of nothing that happened by accident, and instead you realize I am shaped and molded. Everybody is unique. There is Sam and Bill and there's Courtney and there's Ken and there's Demetra and there's, and there's Howard. There's every one of you in this room. There's a Ron and nobody's ever going to live, nobody ever has lived that's just like you. Hinduism isn't right when it talks about that the universe is just a recycling mill where you just keep recycling and reincarnating and maybe someday you'll be able to escape the wheel. The scripture's say no, there's this incredible loving potter who's made you as a piece of pottery. And and what he's saying is that he's created all the pottery. So in the next verses, he starts to wrestle with, what about the vessels of mercy and the vessels of judgment? And a big question that I need to ask myself in my life, and you need to ask yourself in your life, is as I'm the piece of pottery, and God's hands are upon me, and he's shaping me, am I a vessel that's experiencing his mercy and his forgiveness? And his love? Or am I somebody that's, ex- that's ex- feeling the hand of judgment? And just to remind you, Paul's going back to Romans 18. Remember 1 verse 18 where he says, The wrath of God is being revealed against all wickedness and righteousness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And then in Romans one eighteen through 3.22, Paul proved this case that the human race had been created by God but they jumped off the wheel. They've rebelled against him. And, and he goes on and says that God's hands of judgment are upon them. And Pharaoh's an example of that. Look what he says in these next verses. Look at verse 22. What if God choosing, what if God says, okay, and I believe Paul is saying, yes, God has done this. What if God, and he has, I think Paul believes that he has, he's choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience, The objects of his wrath prepared for destruction. Let me make this concrete for you. What it's saying is that Pharaoh was a vessel of God's judgment. And in the book of Exodus, Moses is told before he goes down to Egypt that Pharaoh is going to resist him. And God's going to allow Pharaoh to resist him and God is going to intensify the plagues until the tenth plague explodes. The firstborn sons of Egypt, of all those that wouldn't believe God's promise, and put their kids under the blood of the lamb, the Passover lamb, there's going to be death throughout the land, and God then has set his people free. Now before you get angry at God about that, you need to realize that you begin the book of Exodus, they're taking God's firstborn sons, and and not just his firstborn, but all of his boys in the nation of Israel and throwing them in the river. And Pharaoh is sending his soldiers around and they're spearing little kids. They're, They're committing genocide against the nation of Israel. You need to understand that. You also need to understand that Pharaoh is taking his armies up and down the Near East saying, I'm the king of the world. And Egypt, this incredible culture that built the pyramids hundreds of years before the Pharaoh of the Egypt, uh, of the Exodus in 1444, before he lived, more than uh, 1,500 years before that, they built these gigantic pyramids. They're ruling the world. So Pharaoh is sticking his fist and saying, I don't believe in Moses as God. And what God tells this lowly shepherd out in the Midian Midian desert, go down there and you tell him, I'm God. And tell him to let my people go. And Pharaoh says, you're an idiot, Moses. So God says, no, I'm not. And that's what it's talking about. It's saying that Pharaoh is a vessel facing the judgment of God. That's what Paul is picking up on. And he's saying, what I want you to see, it says that God is, endures Pharaoh's fist and his killing of his children. And as the judge of the universe, he could just destroy Pharaoh immediately, but instead he's patient. So that's what you need to pick up. And I also want you to look carefully. It says, The object of his wrath prepared for destruction. What's very interesting about the Greek term prepared for destruction is that it doesn't, it could have added a before, which God before prepared for destruction, which he's going to use for the vessels of mercy in just a minute, but he doesn't. And something that I want you to really hold on to is that I can't explain God's total sovereign will, the fact that he knows all things. And the fact that we have responsible choices and that we're free to make those choices, I live in tension in my life. I receive God's revelation. Paul doesn't present God sitting in eternity past saying, I'm going to make Pharaoh, and I'm going to make him kill babies, and I'm going to make him rebel against me, and then I'm going to destroy him. Ha, 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 ha. A strict, powerful, consistent Calvinism makes God into the devil, and that's not what the Bible does, so don't do that. Calvin said some incredible things. I still read him a lot, but the system that flows from him pushes sovereignty too hard, and God becomes wicked, and that's not what Paul is saying. You say, well, Dave, why don't you follow that? Because that would be logically consistent, because i Follow the caution. Why does Paul say, not add, he prepared previously? Paul presents God like a potter shaping Pharaoh's life in the present. And Pharaoh's actions aren't catching him by surprise, but there's very real choices that Pharaoh was making. There's real responsibility that he bears in the choices he makes and God over and over again appeals to him, repent. In fact, as you read the story, he's like some of you. He says, oh God, forgive, forgive me, I'm sorry, take the judgment away. So God takes the hail away. As soon as God removes the hail, Pharaoh hardens himself again, puts the people back under slavery and won't let them go. That's what some of you do. In your life, God puts the screws down on you. You begin to experience God's wrath. You begin to feel the negative effects of your sin. And then you get real spiritual. And you come to church like crazy. And you even help in the nursery. And then the consequences are taken away. Or you need me to marry you. You get real spiritual because a year from now, you want to have a nice wedding. That's the con that's in our life. And I'm not saying that all of you. I love doing that. I'm serious. But I'm going to be really honest with you. In doing this a long time, we are con artists. When things aren't going so good, we really get repentant. As soon as the pressure's off, if you're a vessel of wrath, you rebel again. Some of you parents have kids that are like that, right? They run to you for help when they're in bad trouble. But they still won't listen to you. They still don't have a soft heart. That's what Paul's talking about. And what I want to share with you, like if you're that kind of person today, please listen to me. Don't monkey around with the potter. Don't take lightly his hands. And I'm saying that to myself today. And I want you to know the Apostle Paul is saying very strongly, he's guarded. In fact, I could go on and say, like, I believe that God in the Scripture not only knows what happened in the past, I think he knows everything in the present, I think he knows everything in the future. I also believe that the infinite, eternal God not only knows what's going to happen, he knows what could have happened. He knows every potentiality there is. I mean, he literally just blows my mind. And I think it changes the whole issue of how we look. God isn't some grandpa rocking around in eternity past making up this mechanical universe that's determined it's much more dynamic than that and the apostle paul is not letting pharaoh off the hook pharaoh can't say well you made me to be a vessel that would be you know that would make it possible for your children to go through the red sea here's an example of what i'm talking about one of the most decreed events in the bible is the crucifixion of jesus Judas was a key disciple that turned out to be a false disciple that put Jesus on the cross. And Judas is viewed in the Bible as being evil and being wicked and being a rebellious person that never really was watched clean. Jesus says that in John, that he was not one of us, that he, in John 13, it says that he wasn't clean like the rest of the disciples and yet, it was that God predicted in the Psalms that one of the Messiah's innermost circle would betray him. But if you were Judas, you're responsible. And if you were watching all these events that happen, you shouldn't join the crowd that yells, crucify him. You need to be part of those that are following Jesus. You need to join Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. Because we need to live according to God's heart will, not according to his mysterious, decreed sovereign will. The Apostle Paul is challenging because he says, what if God is being patient? Some of you might wonder, like, some of you have wicked people that are hurting you this morning, and you're saying, why did not God just zap them? It's because he's patient. We're going to learn in a minute, as we live in real time, We don't know that maybe what looks to us to be a vessel of wrath suddenly could become a vessel of mercy because Paul's going to talk to us about Look what he goes on and says, what if God, to make his riches of his glory, verse 23, known to the object of his mercy, and I pray this is true of every one of you, whom he prepared in advance. Notice he prepared in advance. Now we do go back into eternity past. Those of you that have come to Christ, those of you that have trusted him, I want you to know that God has made you to experience the riches of his glory. That's the most incredible, wondrous destiny that you should now begin to be experiencing, experiencing. Glory is the incredible, radiant character of God. It's the infinite beauty. It's the infinite truth. How many of you have enjoyed a little bit of love in your life? Anybody here enjoyed a little bit of love? Multiply that in your equation by infinity. Imagine the greatest experience of love and then multiply it infinitely. That's what it means, the glory of the riches of His glory. Because glory is His love how many of you have ever discovered the truth and you felt in your heart, what a wondrous thing? It's real. I figured it out. That's really true. Anybody ever had that happen? Multiply that by infinity. If you're in a court and you're on a jury and this time the jury did the right thing, it was just. You know that feeling that you had? This is right. It was just. Multiply that by infinity. Because for all of eternity, those of you that have trusted Christ and Jesus has come to live inside your life, I want you to know as you sit here, I don't care what your past has been. I don't care what you've done. If you put it under the blood of Jesus and you've received the promise and you let Jesus come to live in your life, and if you've done that, you are a vessel of mercy according to this passage. What Paul is telling you that you were in God's heart before you were even thought of by your parents no matter how you were born it was prepared beforehand that you would experience the riches of his glory so you're safe and secure which doesn't mean you become ritualistic and prideful like the people paul's talking against in this passage It means that you become very pliable clay and you let the hands of the potter keep molding and shaping your life. He says, God wants to show you the rich of his glory to the object of his mercy. Notice the idea of mercy expresses the grace that I talked to you about over and over again that we're receiving forgiveness that we don't deserve and he prepared in advance for us to experience his glory. Even us, that's why I included you whom he also called not only from among the Jews, but also from among the Gentiles. And I believe because Paul's really speaking to a lot of Jewish believers in the Roman church. He uses a passage from the book of Hosea. Look what he said. He quotes from Hosea chapter 2, verse 23. I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved ones who are not my loved ones. And it will happen in the very place, and he goes back to chapter 1 in Hosea, another salvation passage. It will happen in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people. They will be called sons of the living God. Now, if you were Jewish, like if I was back home in New Jersey and we, I was talking with some of my Jewish friends, a Jewish friend of mine would raise his hand right now and say, David, Hosea, chapter 2 and chapter 1, doesn't have anything to do with Gentiles. And there you go again. You just take Jesus and you just plow it into the Old Testament. And that's why I don't believe in Jesus. And I would say, you know what? In some ways, you're right. When it says here, I will call them my people that are not my people, it's referring back to the book of Hosea in the 8th century when the northern kingdom of Israel, the physical sons of Abraham, were going to a temple in Samaria at Bethel. And Bethel, it means the house of God. And when they went to the temple, they had an idol. They had a Canaanite idol in the temple. Their kids, when they went to the temple, the fathers and their sons would have immoral relationships with temple prostitutes. They not only did that at Bethel, but I've actually stood on the place in Tel Don up in northern Israel where they did it. And they would sing Yahweh Psalms. They would read the Ten Commandments and then they'd finish their service by all being immoral. They also believed that it was mechanical. The reason that they're having all this sexuality is that they believed it produced fertility. They believed that Baal and Ashtar up in the heavens would do their thing. You say, David, how in the world could Israelites, where it says, Here, o Israel, the Lord our God is one. The God that said, don't commit immorality. The one that gave a whole chapter in the book of Leviticus, chapter 18, about purity. How in the world could people ever do that? The same way we do it. There's people all over the place who will say, I love Jesus and sing his songs and everything. And that's why I want you to realize don't take the potter's hands for granted because what God said in the book of of Hosea, he says, your name, look at the verse, I will call them my people who are not my people. In Hosea, he had a little boy. The little boy was named Loami. His first child was named Jezreel. That was Hosea's kid from Gomer. But his wife was immoral. She went out, and some of you have experienced this in your family, some of you in your own life. This wife went out, and she was immoral, and she had another child. And when Hosea looked at this kid's fingers, like Joel, my son, here today, how many of you, look at Joel. Where did Joel come from? And little Noah, probably in the nursery, go look at little Noah today and say, where in the world did those come from? From the time that I held Joel in the first few hours, I knew, hey, he's got me written all over him. There I am. little bit of Mary mixed in. Can you imagine you're looking at your kid and you suddenly realize, man, this kid's fingers and his nose and his mouth, there's not a thing on this kid that looks like me. And you begin to scratch your head and you realize, this isn't my kid. This is an illegitimate kid. That's what lo ami means. It means not my people. So God says, you think your kids come from Baal? Then fine, they're not my kids. And then the other word that's used here, and I will call them my beloved who are not my beloved, they have a little girl. In Hebrew, a beautiful name for a little girl is rukamah. Rukamah is a beautiful name for a little girl. It means she's going to experience the womb-like love of her mom. And her dad's going to enter into that womb-like love. They're going to have compassionate, tender love for that rukamah, that little girl. And every time she hears her name, Mom, it has a womb-like love for you. Dad has a womb-like love for you. That's what it means in Hebrew. But in the book of Hosea, Gomorrah had had another illegitimate kid. Another little girl. Had a little girl this time. And God says, I'm not going to call this kid rukamah. She's going to be no compassion because she's not mine. And then what God does is he brings the northern kingdom down and just destroys the northern kingdom. But right while Hosea... The you, you, church was very exciting in Hosea's time. Can you imagine a preacher that preached like that? And then the Assyrian armies marched and the country was destroyed. Hosea's whole kingdom, the whole northern kingdom was wiped away. But he, he would turn from a judgment. And in Hosea, what Paul quotes, he says, in the place where it says, you're not my compassionate one you're going to be my people and my compassionate one. Now, here's Paul's argument. If Jews had become illegitimate, they had become not Yahweh's kids, and then in his merciful love, he lets them become his kids, then doesn't that open the door that Gentiles who never were his kids, could become his kids too. And so I would say to my Jewish friend, Paul really understands the heart of the Jewish God. And what he was saying in the Old Testament is that God in his merciful love is writing this incredible story because there's going to be a day of salvation when those who had never received the mercy of God, those who never could be called his people, there's going to be a wondrous new day of salvation when even Gentiles who weren't seeking after God at all in God's merciful love. And so I say to you today, like if you've come to Christ I don't care if you're Jewish, I don't care if you're Gentile, I don't care if you're segments of gentile dumb, you're from all different backgrounds, all different races. What Paul is saying, if you open your heart to the merciful love of Jesus, that we become God's people. It will happen in the very place where it said to them, you are not my people, they will be called the sons of the living God. And that's our prayer this morning. The divine potter has its hands on your life. Paul in this passage does an amazing thing. He says, you need to submit to the potter's hands. Stop fighting with him. Stop being angry with him because he's a merciful Lord. Then he says, are his hands vessels, is he shaping a vessel of wrath because you're rebelling against him, you're turning against him, or have you become a vessel that responds to his merciful love? Now, as we close, I want you to get this. There's a deep irony in this text. In the Exodus story, who's Dark Vader? Pharaoh. Pharaoh, that's right, okay. In the first century and in Romans 9, who's the Dark Vader? It's the Jewish people, unbelieving Jewish people that are hanging on to their temple. And they're persecuting Paul, and they won't believe that Jesus is their Messiah. Now, Paul isn't anti-Semitic because he's Jewish. And what he's saying here is that there's a remnant among the Jewish people who understand that they become a vessel of judgment, that they don't have a right because they become arrogant, just like all of us. And what the Apostle Paul is saying, in fact, in Romans 11, he's going to complete this passage by saying that God has declared that we're all vessels of judgment under his wrath. So he can have mercy on everyone, all different kinds of people. He uses the book of Isaiah next and he talks about a group of people that stumbled over the stumbling stone so you won't think it's just pretend. David Rosen is a rabbi that argued with R.T. Kendall that was a pastor at Westminster Church. And R.T. tries to reach Rabbi Rosen with the gospel of merciful grace. And he says, no, I have my plan of salvation. It's the Jewish plan. I'm going to keep the law. And R.T. says, no, you can't really keep the law. So that's what I want you to keep reading the passage because I want you to know that the debate that the Apostle Paul was having with Jewish people in the first century is going on today. You're going to have the debate this week. How many of you have religious friends who think that they're in with God because they've joined a particular church? How many of you have friends that think that because they eat certain foods or they wear certain kinds of clothes or they don't listen to certain kinds of music, or they listen to other kinds of music, you're going to go out among a lot of people that say, I'm in because God owes it to me, because I'm in the right group, I was born into the right family, and I'm doing the right things. And if you say to them, I'm just a sinner, and I'm just really in love with Jesus, you know what, they'll get mad at you. How many of you have ever had someone say, I can't believe that you don't think I'm a child of God? I spoke at a funeral one day, and I I presented the gospel at the funeral. And a bunch of people came up to me a few hours after the funeral and said, "We're really ticked to you? It sounded like you think we're sinners. (laughs) And I said, It sounded just right. (laughs) So the debate continues. I pray with all my heart. I'm praying for myself that I'll let God's merciful, tender hands shape and mold me, that I'll stop clenching my fist and being angry with God, that I'll just submit to the wheel and his hands upon me, let him shape and mold me. I pray that I will forever be thankful that even though his mighty judgment deserved to come against my life and yours, he provided a savior who could take not my people and he could take Gentiles and Jews and they could be called my people forever and ever. He could take up people that didn't experience his compassion because they were sinners that rejected him, but God, through his son, provided a new day. As you sit here today, I want you to know as I close, if you've invited this incredible miracle of life to come into your heart, I want every one of you to relish that. Your heavenly daddy today is holding you in his arms and saying, Rukamah, 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 you're my compassion one. You're the object of my compassion forever and ever and ever. And it's all by merciful, gracious love. Spread that message to the world. Rest in that message. Enter into really meaningful, life-giving discussions with those that don't get it yet. Because we never know when a vessel that we think is a vessel of destruction could become a forgiven, incredible, wondrous object that's now experiencing the shaping, molding hands of Jesus.